Amen. It's been said that we will become like that which we worship. Are we? What's your view of God? Jesus said on several occasions, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Are we appearing to the world as a people who worships a God of mercy? God is merciful all the time, even if it sometimes is a severe mercy. Turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. We're going to see a little bit about a severe mercy, uh, unexpected mercies. We actually come to the text today in 2 Corinthians 12 that is the springboard of our entire series. The theme of our series has been strength in weakness. And that is, in fact, the summary of the entire text we're going to read today. The theme for this morning particularly is strength in weakness through humility. We're going to learn that there is an advantage to disadvantage. I didn't make that up. An author named Malcolm Gladwell did. If you're familiar with his work, he's written books such as uh, Outliers. He's written a book called The Tipping Point, uh, Blink, What the Dog Saw. Uh, He is known for actually taking some sociological research, looking at it a little uniquely, and coming up with, if you will, principles that grab us by surprise. One of his books is called David and Goliath. And it's the principle where we learn the advantage of disadvantage. If you think about David and Goliath, David was disadvantaged. And that was his advantage. He was smaller than Goliath. He had less armor than Goliath. He was less experienced in warfare than Goliath. So how was his disadvantage to his advantage? Well, precisely because he knew he was weak. He humbled himself before God, who delights in showing grace to the humble. Malcolm Gladwell's book is not a Christian book, but in David and Goliath, he cites some research done by City University of London. They researched hundreds of entrepreneurs, business leaders, successful people, and they discovered that well over a third of those leaders struggled with dyslexia. Interesting. He cites uh, another study where this one woman was speaking to a group, and in light of her study, she asked the question. It was a bunch of donors to a university. They were all gathered, very wealthy, very successful, 
Again, business leaders, entrepreneurs. She asked for a show of hands. How many of them wrestled with a learning disability? Half of the hands went up. Malcolm Gladwell asked a question. What was it about the disadvantage that made these people successful? He said there are two options, two possible interpretations of the facts. First possibility is that these are simply a remarkable group of people. That they're so smart, so gifted, and so creative that no disability or disadvantage was going to get in their way. Gladwell didn't buy that. He said the second interesting possibility is they succeeded in part not in spite of their disadvantage, but because of their disadvantage, having learned something in the struggle that proved to be an enormous advantage. Think with me now. What's your limp today? Where do you feel at disadvantage? What weaknesses do you feel hamper you? What challenges are you facing? Could it be, could it be that in Christ your greatest disadvantage is actually to your advantage? Could it be that your greatest weakness is actually, in God's redemptive plan, your greatest strength. That's exactly what Paul reveals in this passage. In Ecclesiastes 9, verse 11, the author of Ecclesiastes says, The race is not always to the swift, nor is the battle always to the strong. And nowhere is that more important than in the race of the Christian life and in the battles against sin and evil. The context of the passage is there are false teachers that are trying to lead the Corinthians to a false gospel. And these false teachers are maligning Paul. They're making fun of him. They're saying that he's weak, he's scrawny in appearance, and his voice is irritating and weak. And what he says just isn't that powerful after having read his letters. The false teachers saying, on the other hand, look at us. We're sharp, according to the world standards. We're gifted. We're successful. So therefore, the Spirit of God is upon us. And Paul counters by saying, what if the world has it completely upside down? What if what qualifies an apostle or brings great fruitfulness to a Christian life is not our strengths at all?
But what if power comes through our greatest weaknesses? Acknowledged and surrendered to Christ. I don't know about you, but there's something in me, namely my weaknesses, that longs for that to be true. And it is. The whole passage is about it. So let's all stand out of reverence for God's Word and follow along as I read a very famous passage. And why is it so famous? Because we do know we're so weak. And we go to passages like this for comfort and hope. 2 Corinthians 12, 1-10 I must go on boasting, though there is nothing to be gained by it. I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ, he's talking about himself by the way, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know, God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know, God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man I will boast, but on my own behalf I will not boast, except of my weaknesses. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So to keep me from becoming conceited, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations... A thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. May God bless the hearing and the teaching of His inspired, infallible, inerrant, and authoritative word. This is God's word. He gave it to us because He loves us. And He wants us to understand that our every disadvantage is our advantage. Let's pray. Father, this is not worldly logic at all. Your logic turns the world's logic on its head. But Father, we confess that many of us think like the world. And why not? We're in the world. We're bombarded with it constantly. So Lord, correct our thinking. Change our perspective. In Jesus' name, amen. Go ahead and have a seat. You know, this isn't new revelation for Paul. If you go just several verses up, In 2 Corinthians 11, verse 30, Paul says again, I will boast of things that show or reveal or display my weaknesses. Is that how you experience the church? 
Do you experience the church as a safe place for you to reveal or display your weaknesses? I mean, that's what a gospel-driven church is supposed to be. A place where we recognize we so deeply need the gospel of grace because we're so deeply broken and so incredibly weak. And the way that we experience power is by acknowledging and surrendering our weaknesses to Christ. What does it say over and over in Scripture? God opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. If we're prideful, God will oppose us. If we're humble, we will experience the power of grace. So three perspectives that must change if we're to grow in the humility that leads to strength. First of all, see every privilege as a grace. If we're to grow in humility, we not only need to see our disadvantage being an advantage, but we also need to realize that it's dangerous to focus on our strengths. Because if we focus on our strengths in the wrong way, it will lead to self-sufficiency and self-reliance. And we'll no longer be connected to divine power, but merely human resources. Look look at verse 4. Paul says, I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. Now you'd think that'd be something to boast about. We find in this passage that he has had these visions 14 years earlier. It's likely 56 AD when Paul writes 2 Corinthians. So this is 14 years earlier, inclusive, you get to about 43 AD. That was just several years after Paul was converted. It's a decade where we know very little about Paul's life. He talks about it as being a period when he was taught by Christ, instructed and discipled by Jesus. Paul may not have been with Jesus when Jesus walked the earth, but he was Jesus when Jesus was in heaven. He was raptured. That's what the word caught up means. He was raptured to heaven. With the thief on the cross, when Jesus said, Today, I promise you, you will be with me in paradise. Paul was raptured to that place. Now, we didn't know how it happened. He says twice, whether in the body, out of the body, I don't know. God knows. In other words, he doesn't even know whether God took him body and soul to heaven, to paradise, or whether maybe just his soul departed his body. Paul doesn't know. He doesn't really care. He says, God knows. Now, what's interesting about this description that you would think we would all boast of, wouldn't we? Do you think any of us could be quiet for 14 years if we were raptured to heaven? So right away, you see some humility in Paul. Well, what brought about that humility? The thorn in the flesh. As soon as he was raptured, to heaven and came back down, he had a thorn. So he'd had this thorn for 14 years. And the thorn was a constant reminder not to boast about his privileged rapture. Now, when Paul talks about his vision, he talks about it in terms of of a third-person narrative. He didn't even talk about himself. He says, I know a man in Christ. See, the thorn in the flesh did its work. It humbled Paul 
regarding the privilege and the strength of being raptured to heaven. And he said, he wouldn't even say it was him, although clearly the passage reveals it's him. I know a man in Christ. I know a normal Christian, not even an apostle. He's not referring to himself as an apostle because it's not because he was an apostle. He had that experience. It's simply because he was a man in Christ and God, by his grace, sovereignly decided Paul was going to have that experience. All through this passage, Paul seeks to inform us for his sake and for our sake that every strength we have Every skill we have, every accomplishment that we've seen is due solely to grace. Now, that's not saying we're not responsible. There's a tension here. But Paul's clearly saying he can take no credit for being responsible. He said he was caught up to the third heaven, caught up to paradise. That means someone else did it. Paul didn't climb his way into paradise. He was caught up by God's power, by God's grace. Paul is saying, I really had nothing to do with what happened to me. Now, he contrasted this with the false teachers who said they also had visions But they made the basis of their visions their own skill, their own strength, their own goodness, their own performance, their own intelligence, their own spirituality, their superiority. And Paul turns it on its head and says, no, it was only sheer grace. And the thorn in the flesh did that. It reminded Paul of that. When you look at your advantages, your privileges, your strengths, your skills, your accomplishments? Are you tempted to see them as due to your own efforts? See, if we're tempted to see our strengths as due to anything in us, then we will be tempted towards self-reliance and we will be tempted towards self-sufficiency and that's pride. And God's not joking, folks. He opposes the proud. How would you like to live a life where God is fighting against you for a season? When we allow ourselves to live in pride, to live in conceit, to live in arrogance, when we're not God-conscious and God-dependent, but instead are relying upon our strengths, then we are living a life opposed by God. Now, if we know Christ, the purpose of that opposition is only to humble us, so that we would experience grace and experience power. Paul says in verse 7, On behalf of this man, this man who was raptured, I will boast because this man had nothing to do with it. But on my own behalf, in other words, my own strengths, my own accomplishments, I will never boast. Why? Because they're only due to God's grace 
anyway. Verse 6, I refrain from boasting so that no one may think more of me than he sees or hears in me. Well, what did people see and hear in Paul? Nothing impressive. What they saw in him was a scrawny little geek. What they heard in Paul was this squeaky voice, unskilled. He may even have had a stutter. I'll get to that in a moment. Paul didn't want anybody to think more than they saw and heard in him. 2 Corinthians 4, Paul says, We have this treasure in jars of clay. so that the power may be seen as coming from God and not from ourselves. The world has a tendency to exalt the strong, the wise, the intelligent, the beautiful. But God says, I've chosen the weak to shame the strong. I've chosen the foolish to shame the wise. The safest place for us is recognizing the disadvantage of our advantages and recognizing the advantage of disadvantage. Corrie Ten Boom is a woman who was in the Nazi concentration camps during World War II. And she was a woman of faith, and she was there with her sister Betsy, and they held Bible studies in secret. They prayed, they saw God do amazing things. They were the source of hope and faith to many in the concentration camps. They were eventually freed and Corrie Ten Boom went and spoke to thousands and thousands and thousands. And Corrie Ten Boom was asked one day, Corrie, do you ever wrestle with pride? Are you ever tempted toward conceit or a big head? And Corrie Ten Boom's response was, you remember on Palm Sunday when Jesus came into Jerusalem? And people waved the palm branches and they laid down their garments and they shouted praises. Jesus came on a donkey. Do you think for one second the donkey ever thought this is all for me? She said, I'm reminded continually that I am simply the donkey on whose back the glory of Jesus rides. And that keeps me humble. Watch out. Your greatest strength could lead you to self-reliance and self-sufficiency. A God independence that will lead you to fall flat on your face. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Then secondly, not only see every privilege as a grace, see every thorn as a testimony. I talked about the thorn of the flesh that Paul received, a messenger of Satan to harass him, verse 7, that came as soon as he came back from his rapturous time with Jesus. Verse 7, so to keep me from becoming conceited, A thorn was given me in the flesh. And then he repeats himself to keep me from being conceited. 
The testimony of a thorn is that every one of us is prone toward pride. It's, it's the result of the fall of Adam and Eve. It's, it's, it's as natural as slipping off a log in the water. Pride entered the world through sin. And all of us are prone to it. And so God in His love, not because He takes perverse pleasure in seeing us suffer, but because He knows what it takes to keep us close, He gives us, at times, thorns in the flesh. Now, we don't know what this thorn was. I mean, literally, a thorn is a sharp-pointed stick or a sharp-pointed splinter. It could get in your eye. It could get in another sensitive part. It's painful. It's humiliating. Paul had it for 14 years. A messenger of Satan. God's sovereign but uses evil for his own purposes. And the testimony of the thorn relates to how dangerous pride is to the Christian life. How dangerous pride is to human beings. Pride is the most deadly sin of the seven deadly sins. It's always listed first. It's the springboard of all the other sins. Pride was the first sin of Adam and Eve. Now we don't know what this thorn was. A lot of people try to tell you that they know what it is. Even scholars. The fact is, read the text. God doesn't tell us. You know why? Because God wants us all to be hopeful. And God wants us all to be encouraged. And God wants us all to be comforted. And God wants us all to be humbled. You see, if we were told or we figured out what Paul's thorn was, well, then we'd become prideful about having Paul's thorn. How sick is that? A thorn that is sent to keep us humble If we figured out we've got Paul's thorn, we'd become pride about the thorn that was sent to keep us humble. Or, most of us who didn't have the thorn would not be comforted and not be encouraged because we might think, well, the passage doesn't apply to me. No, Paul left it general so that every one of us could perceive our weaknesses as a thorn in the flesh ordained by God, sent by the devil. In my own life, how many times have I stood up here and talked about my fears, my anxieties, my awfulizing? In my own life, in all of y'all's lives, I'm an optimist, I'm a tigger. By personality, I'm a digger. But I think of all the ways that I could fail. I live under constant pressure of perfectionism. Not because of other people, but because of me. And sometimes the pressure is unbearable. And I have asked God not three times, but 300,000 times to remove this from me. And I have been comforted by these words. Bob... No, no. To keep you from conceit, from being puffed up, 
from becoming arrogant or get, getting a big head, I've allowed this thorn to remain, to keep you humble because I love you and the only safe place for my children is the place of humility. Because when you sense your weakness and your brokenness, you stick close by me. What's your thorn? Could be a really hard marriage. Could be difficult children. It could be a physical ailment. It could have been Paul's eyesight. He could have been struggling with glaucoma and near blindness. It could have been a physical disability. Some had suggested it could be stuttering. It could be emotional trauma from having killed Christians. Like some of us, this anniversary of Roe versus Wade might be struggling with having ended a life ourselves. It might have been depression. And then, of course, in our day, a thorn in the flesh could be same-sex attraction. It could be gender confusion. Not things that we're supposed to give into, but things that acknowledge our brokenness, our weakness that God has ordained through the fall so that we would be desperately dependent for Christ. That messenger of Satan to harass, it's in the present tense. And that word harass, harass means to pummel with your fists until beaten black and blue. Can you fathom that the loving God, the merciful God, could ordain a messenger of Satan to pummel you continuously and constantly black and blue? Well, if you understand how dangerous pride is and how powerless independence is and how evil self-reliance and self-sufficiency is, then yes, you can see how God would resort to these lengths to keep us near to Him. Verse 8, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should lead me. By the way, Paul pleaded to the one who pleaded to the Father three times. Father, if possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not my will, but your will be done. And that's what the Father ended up saying to Paul. Or what Jesus ended up saying to Paul. No. No. This is the very best for you. Can you believe that? Can you trust God in His goodness that the thorn that you wrestle with is for your very best? Can you believe that it's a testimony of God's kindness to you? I struggle with that. But verse 9, He said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. See every thorn as a testimony. And then lastly, that leads us to the third point. See every weakness as a strength. 
So if you wanted to, I could rearrange the points. For point one, see every strength as a potential weakness. If we, if we start living out of our strengths from the standpoint of self-sufficiency and self-reliance, we're living apart from Christ. There's no power. See every thorn as a gift of love. And then lastly, see every weakness as a strength. Verse 9, he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you for powers made perfect in weakness. Do you see that? Do you realize that turns the logic of the world upside down? The world thinks power's made perfect in power. The world thinks power's made perfect in strength, in skill, in intelligence. But God's word says power's made perfect in weakness. Why? Because in weakness we're God dependent. And in strength it's so hard not to be self reliant. And would you rather live with human resources or would you rather live with divine resources? God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Grace as unconditional love and grace as supernatural transforming power. You see, the false teachers were elevating their own strengths. The false teachers were relying upon their own skill. And the contemporary church is in danger of doing the same thing all the time. Who knows what we're headed for in America? Could get rough. But where's your hope? For too long, the church has thought there's strength and strength. For too long, the church has bought into the lie that there's power in being connected to power. Not only does Scripture not say that that's not true, but But church history, all of church history points to how that's a lie. There's there's never been a situation where the church has been in power by being with the people in power. Where it's been fruitful. Not one. Get out church history and read it. And yet the cases are numerous when the government in particular has been absolutely hostile to the church, where the gospel has thrived. Why? Because God opposes the proud. And He gives grace to the humble. The humble are those who are aware of their own weakness, their own disadvantage. And that disadvantage brought in absolute desperation to Jesus becomes our greatest advantage. Just like Malcolm Gladwell says, David and Goliath. David's greatest advantage was his disadvantage that cast himself upon God. And Goliath's greatest advantage was his greatest disadvantage. Goliath fell because of his pride and his arrogance and his conceit. And also because, since David lived by humility, God opposed Goliath and gave grace 
to David. 1 Corinthians 1, the whole message of the cross is a message of weakness. Through the weakness of the crucifixion, through the weakness of the King of kings and Lord of lords, allowing himself to be beaten and tortured and crowned with thorns. Through the weakness of the crucifixion, the power of God is experienced. And that's why Jesus said to every one of us who know him, if anyone would come after me, let him take up his cross. Just like I have. And follow me. To take up your cross is to take up your limp. To take up your weakness. To take up your disadvantage. And in humility, surrender it to Christ and therefore experiences power. 1 Corinthians 1, God has chosen the foolish in this world to shame the wise. Is that humbling to you? Get used to it. The world is going to think we're fools. God never promises a scenario in which we live in a country where we can expect that Christians are seen as wise. Why are we expecting that? God has chosen the weak to shame the strong. Under what biblical scenario do Christians appear as strong in culture? God promises we will appear as weak so that the strong would be shamed by the power of God. Therefore, most gladly, I will boast of my weaknesses, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. That that rest upon me, again, is the present tense, continually, constantly. It goes back to the picture of the tabernacle in the Old Testament when the Shekinah glory of God would fill the tabernacle. And Paul is saying, as we boast in our weaknesses, now again, that doesn't mean we're actually boasting, like, look at me, I'm weaker than you. It it, it means embracing our weaknesses as God's conduit of His power. That's what it means to boast in our weaknesses. And as we boast in our weaknesses, the power of God pitches its tent over our lives just like the Shekinah glory filled the tabernacle. I fear for too long the church has wanted to be strong. I fear for too long the church has wanted to be powerful. And it's a paradox. The only way to power is to admit our weakness. Paul says, verse 10, to wrap things up, I am therefore content with weaknesses, with insults, with hardships, with persecutions, with calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Church, are we even willing 
anymore. To be counted weak. Are we even willing anymore to put up with insults? Or are we so eager to rise up and defend ourselves and our rights that God is opposing us until we repent and embrace the cross? You know, COVID has bubbled up a lot of sin. COVID has bubbled up fear, defensiveness. divisiveness. But what if COVID is actually the church's thorn? What if God sent it to humble His people? To remind us afresh to watch out for conceit. To touch our hip the way that God touched Jacob's hip so that he walked with a limp. So that we would no longer rely on our own skills or privileges or intelligence or sharpness. But instead, we would stay near to Jesus because we are aware of how desperately weak we are in the face of Goliaths that are all around us. The advantage of disadvantage. It is the message of the cross. Let's pray. Father, Uh, Would we even now bring our limps to you? God, we confess that we fight against admitting weakness, perhaps more than anything else. And yet it's the very thing that opens up the conduit of grace. God, we don't know what you're doing with COVID, but we do pray that you take it away and And God, we thank you that that we don't have to wait for a vaccine for the worst pandemic, which is sin. That all we need to do is come. All who are weary and heavy laden, all we need to do is come to you, Jesus. And you give us the vaccine of your blood. And so, Lord, if there's anybody here this morning that isn't trusting in Christ that they would transfer their trust from themselves, their own reliance, their own sufficiency to you, Jesus. And then God, remind us that what began the Christian life continues the Christian life, that all of us every day need to stay near to you, Jesus, as our good shepherd, because we are weak and you are strong. You oppose the proud and give grace to the humble. So, oh, Jesus, we humble ourselves. We are David's and we face many Goliaths in our lives. 
God, we pray for your grace. And we agree with Paul. We'll boast in our weaknesses, for when we are weak, then in Christ we are strong. We thank you for Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen.